Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Football is about scoring goals, uh, not just hitting the crossbar. Bruno Fernandes' words after scoring a post-full-time 100th-minute penalty to give Manchester United a quite incredibly undeserved win and three points away at Brighton and Hove Albion. Welcome to the Manchester United Weekly Podcast Series 6, Episode 3 with your hosts, Harry Robinson and Jack Tate. We're talking about a very, very dramatic uh, 3-2 win against Brighton and Hove Albion, a game which ended 2-2 and yet Manchester United managed to win 3-2. We'll also be previewing the next game against Brighton yet again, also a Away uh, by the sea, and then Tottenham Hotspur next weekend. Uh, the, the fixtures keep on coming, especially for Spurs, as we'll talk about later. But firstly, um, Jack and I will talk about the Brighton game. Um, I think we should probably start with the with the drama, not the necessarily Solskjaer's management and the, the team's performance, which we'll certainly move on to because neither of them um, showered themselves in in praise at the weekend. But the drama, it's, it's, it, it it was it was remarkable, Jack, and it's a kind of. I mean, it's one of those games where you think it took me a good half an hour to kind of process what had happened. Um, the game finishes 2-2. There's, there's Brighton's 95th minute equaliser and the, the full-time whistle goes after United have a, a header cleared off the line by Harry Maguire. And suddenly this kind of anger's erupting that United should have been given a penalty, but the referee's blown the full-time whistle so it won't happen. And then suddenly he's giving a penalty. Um, it was... I mean, it was in, I mean, we've used the word unprecedented a lot in 2020, but this was an unprecedented football fixture um, that had me basically shaking for about 10 minutes after and and my heart rate was going. Yeah, it was one of those, the the roller coaster of emotions was so, so strong. You thought we were completely getting out of jail with a 2-1 victory in in the 93rd minute. That would have been completely undeserved. And then Brighton obviously go and score through Solly March, which has been coming, if if we're honest, for the last 10 minutes. Yeah, yeah. And then it's just complete. It was it was complete kind of despondency initially, and then yeah. at least person kind of turns to anger because it was so predictable and it was so obviously coming. And it's just complete and utter chaos and confusion, mixed in with almost some embarrassment. To be honest, on my end, of yeah. almost not just the the worst. Firstly, the worst possible way to win a game, and secondly, the worst possible performance I think you could ever put in and still come away with a victory because we were shocking yeah. for. For 90 minutes, we were genuinely, genuinely shocking. 
And, I, you know, you've got a feel for Brighton and <laughs> it's one of those games you have to kind of shrug off and just count your lucky stars that we were able to somehow come, come away with the three points. Yeah, it was... I mean, it, it was so undeserved. A point would have been would have been fortunate for United. Um, and the fact that we yeah, were... I mean, generous we were, to even draw. Even before all of this happened, we were a minute away from, from actually winning the game, forgetting Solly March's equaliser, forgetting Bruno Fernandes' penalty. And, and that's that's ridiculous in itself. Um, and it was just... Yeah. There were so, so many emotions because it, you're, you're right. It was the, the Solly March scored and it was... Because it had been so expected, it wasn't anger. It was... Um, despondency as you say um, and then it was anger when you see the replays and you see Bruno Fernandes has, has lost his marker and there there's anger and then when the penalty is not given then you, you turn to anger and you think this has happened again after Victor Lindelof has, yeah. has, has been given a, a horrendous penalty decision against him and we will talk about the handball rule in, in just a minute actually um, and then the, the the delirium of of a, a hundredth minute winner and it, it's this it's another strange one because You've got these conflicted emotions of that was incredible, that was brilliant, that was awful, all of these things going on, but ultimately no fans were there. And that that game with fans, and I think it, it's, it's easy to forget in the kind of new um, era of football, of, of, of COVID football, but that game would have been one of the, the greats of the season had Brighton yeah, fans been winning their team on as they hit the crossbar five times, had United fans been able to celebrate on a Saturday 12.30 kickoff, being able to celebrate an 100th minute winner and kind of dance all the way home back up to Manchester. And it, it's, I think it's it's worth pointing out how much of a, of a shame that is um, every so often. Yeah, it, it almost bugs me how you getting you how much I'm getting used to not having fans in the stadium. You know, yeah. when you watch highlights of old games now, it, it almost feels weird to see fans in the stadium rather than it feeling so strange not having them in there now. Yeah. And I don't really like that I'm becoming so accustomed to it because it has taken away from the game so much. As you said, I think, honestly, we probably would have had a very different outcome to this game just because I think the, the fans of spurring Brighton on probably would have, put, well, at least potentially changed how some of their chances fell. Yeah. But I mean, just imagine the complete mayhem and pandemonium in that stadium <laughs> in the last five minutes from the, the jubilation of, of Solly March's equaliser to... I mean, the outrage in, at the Amex of that penalty decision would have been palpable. And I wonder how different the reaction to all these handballs would have been had there been fans in this stadium. Because yeah, you know, referees are you know, obviously working according to the letter of the law, but they're still humans. And you wonder if, say, at United on uh, last weekend against Palace or Palace's decision this weekend that went against them against Everton or this this one at, at the Amex or Spurs at, the, at St. James's Park just now, you wonder... If you have 50,000, 60,000 home fans screaming and booing and whistling at the referee to not give that yeah. decision, whether it would have just changed anything. I don't know if it would, but referees are still human and can be affected by that kind of stuff. But yeah, this was this game missed out so much because there were no fans in the stadium. It would have made this ending a true Premier League classic. Yeah. And for 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 the wrong reasons, to yeah. be fair. <laughs> yeah. Um. Let's let's talk about the wrong reasons. I, th- I think. Look, we we mentioned the handball rule. We mentioned the the uh, goalkeeper off the line for the penalty rule last week, and I think we were we were rightfully angry about that, even though we fully deserved to be beaten by Palace. Um. I think it's quite a good week to get the handball rule talk out of the way when it has benefited us on a quite credible scale. And ultimately, it's a it's it's it's. It's it's hard to put into words, and and I've we're recording this just after I've watched Tottenham lose two points after a late penalty where it's it, the ball has hit Eric Dyer's hand. It's not handball. Um, Neil Morpays was slightly more 
um, more controversial in the old rules. Yeah. His hand was up in the air. It wasn't a natural position. And then you've got the Palace one against Everton. But without talking about specific examples, I, I, I find it hard to imagine how you could deal with this as a player and a manager. The, the frustration for Graham Potter, for Jose Mourinho, for Eric Dyer, for Roy Hodgson. And it's... It's hard to put into words, but it's 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 a disgrace of a rule. And the sad thing is, I do think that the the Premier League as a brand will love it because the drama of United's game, the drama of Tottenham's game, another ninety fifth minute penalty, and even the Palace Everton game as well. It's it's perfect for the Premier League. It's it's more goals. It's it's dramatic refereeing decisions. It's managers coming out after the game and, and in in a fury. Um, and and it's just just as fans don't matter when Manchester United have to go down to Brighton for a 12.30 kickoff or or to Sheffield on a Monday night or when Sunderland have to travel to Southampton for the early kickoff on, on Saturday or the late kickoff on Sunday or when the VAR is not at all communicated in football stadiums, but it is on TV. And fans don't matter in that situation. I'm not sure fairness matters here either. And the drama helps. Mourinho's brilliant lines after the game help. It's all entertainment. And, and I think the real shame, and to be fair, Steve... Bruce and Roy Hodgson kind of did this perfectly is they they managed to come out after the game and say that I'm they're not blaming the referee but I'm blaming the rule and the rule is a failure and football's always got a problem with this it, it's had it for a long time of where a very select few individuals make the rules and the people who speak out against those rules are punished for doing so. And managers should be able to come out after the game and say, I'm not blaming the referee, but I do think the rule is a failure. And that's what Steve Bruce and Roy Hodgson did, and it was perfect. And and we could move forward if more people do that. Yeah, Bruce and Hodgson, I think, really showed the way that all managers have to go when they're talking about this. Because as much as Jose Mourinho might think that he's showing his outrage and his disgust it actually doesn't really help because like you said, it's entertainment. It's kind of what the Premier League wants. <laughs> Ultimately, you have to remember the Premier League is a business. It's an entertainment product. It's not It's not a sporting body, like even like the FA. Yeah. The Premier League is, is quite removed from that. It's, and it's not that different than what we spoke about last week with the goalkeepers coming off their line during penalties when obviously De Gea was penalised after saving Ayu's penalty. More penalties for the Premier League means more goals, means more entertainment, yeah. means more money. And ultimately, money, as much as we might not like to admit it, is the currency that the Premier League deals in. It's not fans' joy of the game. It's not any sort of attachment to the purity of football. There is such a huge machine running in the background, behind the scenes, because football is such a huge business now. It's not necessarily a sport for the fans. Having said that, it is still completely and utterly disgraceful to have some genuinely brilliant football matches ruined by this rule. And I feel for the referees a lot because they're actually yeah. getting all of these big decisions correct including our penalty against Brighton they're getting it spot yeah. on according to the law I don't think any one of these penalties shouldn't have been a penalty if we're interpreting these laws as they should be interpreted and if you want to take subjectivity out of it as the IFAB seems to want want to do I understand that because let, let's not forget that there was still a ton of controversy about the old handball uh, rule and to be honest I found it quite ridiculous seeing all yeah. these pundits on Sky and the BBC and TalkSport and NBC and wherever talking about how awful this rule is and how it needs to go back when most of them made in their entire careers out of con- uh, about criticising referees' controversial handball yeah. decisions in the old rule. That was why there was such a clamour to get the subjectivity taken out of it. The problem is if you do that, as I said last week, if you are making it completely objective, if it hits a hand, it's penalised, it has to be an indirect free kick. You cannot make these game-changing decisions I mean, I think the Eric Dyer one is probably the worst. I'm sure most of you watching, listening to this have seen it by now. The Eric Dyer one, he gets a little nudge in the back, first of all, from Jamal Lascelles. And then 
Andy Carroll heads it at him. Eric Dyer isn't even facing the ball. <laughs> it comes from behind him. And because he's been pushed in the back, his arm is doing a sort of windmill motion because he's lost his balance and it hits his arm as he does that. Yeah. If we're putting this much, this, this sort of level of strictness into the handball rule, why are we not putting the same level of strictness onto the little push in the back? It, you can't have it both ways. It, it can't be allowed to stand. And yet, I think we all know that at least for the foreseeable future, it probably will. Yeah. And yeah, it's a difficult one. Indirect free kicks would obviously help quite significantly. The, the, the problem I've got with it is we complained about the subjectivity of the handball rule before. And I, I think kind of right, rightfully so. But what's happened is you've got both VARs being introduced, which should fix the problems of the handball rule. Because in a, in a, in a world where it's, it's clearly marked where handball begins, so from down from the from the t-shirt line they call it even though it's nothing like a t-shirt line um but in a world where that is the rule where handball is kind of below the shoulder and it has to be deliberate if the referee on the pitch can go over to the monitor and look at the screen they should be able to decide on that and there there has to be some subjectivity in that the problem before was that the referees didn't get to have a replay now they have the replay they should be able to manage Trying on, to make that kind of subjective decision in half a second is impossible. Yeah, but now they've got the the ability to to look at things back. Making a subjective decision is is fine. That that's part of the job. So you've taken out. You've kind of you've tried to fix two things related to the handball rule, but by doing them have made it worse. Whereas fixing one would have been okay. If if VR didn't exist, then this rule maybe would be acceptable because it would be easy to make decisions on the pitch. But because VR's there and the rule has changed, it's it's just unsustainable. It makes football there's, there's drama, but it, it's just it's it's like kind of like soap opera drama right, rather yeah. than sporting drama. And it, it, I think I just. I hate it because it's so obvious. Like it's been like this, not quite this bad, but it's been like this for a couple of years now. And it's only yeah. it's only really now that things have started to really go into motion with it. I'm pretty sure I saw a uh, a tweet earlier that said the Premier League is so far on course to give 286 penalties this year if the <laughs> the rate from the first three weeks continues. I'm pretty sure the current record is 112. I mean, it's it's just ridiculous. And it's not just handballs, to be fair. Handballs are the majority. But I mean, and I think we all knew that VAR would cause a bit of a spike in penalties, but it just seems like it's not being applied in the right way. And again, I, I don't blame the referees yeah, yeah. at all. It's not their fault. It's it's the people making the laws at the IF, IFAB who are sort of making all this happen. I think the last thing I was saying is, what are we paying referees to do if not to make subjective decisions? Exactly, yeah, yeah. That is the entire point of referees. they there aren't many objective decisions in football. Offside is probably the only one. And even then we've seen that there is still some level of subjectivity <laughs> yeah. in it because you can't always be 100% sure. So what, what, are we, what are we paying referees to do if not to make those decisions? Trust that these people who have been highly, highly trained, trust me, I've been a, I am a referee and I, I know what the pipeline is like to get into the Premier League. It's difficult. It takes a long time. These people have been trained for minimum sort of 10, 15 years to get to this position. They're not going to get everything right, just as footballers don't get everything right on the pitch. But at some point, we have to trust that, especially with VAR, when they can go to the monitor and watch it in slow motion millions of times, that they will get the decisions right at least eight eight times out of ten. Yeah. And the the, the problem for me, especially with the handball rule, is this isn't something that... that It's not as if people are handballing deliberately, very occasionally. Yeah. Um, But it's, it's not as if the players can adapt their games to stop doing this. 
because you can't you can you can't have every player doing a pencil jump in the penalty area and you can't have every player running with their hands at their side it, it isn't possible it is possible if you're kind of marshalling along the box to put your hands behind your back and players do that now but this isn't something that can be trained out of football and that's why it's it's not kind of a matter of time before things settle down it, it will always be like this. Anyway, we should move on and talk about the actual football, um, which was uh, interesting. Lots of things to talk about. Let's talk about Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's management to start with. <laughs> there, there was a lot. Um, it, it kind of felt like the game where, and I, I saw, I think it was Aaron West tweet about this, where it, it seemed quite obvious that it brought to light the fact that Ole Gunnar Solskjaer is a very good man manager and perhaps one of the best, actually. In, in keeping his players happy, but it does often seem like his main aim is to keep his players happy and that he thinks that will do the rest on the pitch. And tactically, there isn't that much there. Now, we have seen some very good tactical performances, um, especially in, in big games. Other times, it's been down to uh, a bit of luck and the players working very hard and, and frustrating the other team. So there's a bit of nuance to it, but did feel like one of those games where that problem with his management was very obvious. Yeah, I just feel in both defence and attack, we don't seem to have much of an identity at the moment or any sort of serious tactical plan. It sort of seems like Solskjaer's plan every game is throw wherever we think are the best 11 players on the pitch and sort of hope for the best. And I understand that to some degree. Yeah. But you have to you have to be a little bit more astute than that. Even even going back to our really good run of form after lockdown, I still yeah. wouldn't really say that we had a brilliant system. We had a system that was sort of based on counter-attacking, honestly, a lot of the time, no. which isn't really sustainable in, in a lot of games because most teams will sit back against us. And then, and, and then there was some sort of individual brilliance and a team clearly riding high on confidence. Solskjaer is a brilliant man-manager, as we've seen. I, I honestly don't think there are many managers in the world that would have been able to keep Paul Pogba here and look in so happy as he was at the end of last season. Admittedly, I think COVID helped in that he was able to get fit and come back again. But I genuinely don't think there are many managers that would have done that. It looks like he's sort of unlocking the best out of Rashford and Martial and Greenwood, at least yeah. in terms of sort of yeah. their attitude on the pitch. But I and I don't think this is revisionist history to, to suggest this. I don't think he's ever really shown us that much tactically. I think the hope has always been that those around him to the Kieran McKenna's of this world will sort of do enough tactically and then we can make good enough decisions in the transfer market yeah. and that the players are good enough to kind of ride that confidence and that sort of happy feeling as players into them playing well. Yeah. And it just, it doesn't seem like it's happening at the moment. Yeah. It was also a game where um, we, we've spoken about transfers a lot, but it was a game where look, a, a very good right winger would obviously have helped um, and might have made United better. Someone like Jaden Sancho, for example, might have made United better in that game. But it was a game where it was obvious that United still need a midfielder who can do what Nemanja Matic does, but better and every week and can protect the defence, can have the pace to allow Pogba and Fernandes to be further forward and perhaps Van der Beek in the future and and having the, the, the right midfielder for that team. And I mean, we've been trying to get this for, for years. It's not to say we've not spent money on midfielders. We have. Fred Matic, um, McTominay's coming through and and is a useful option, but isn't that player. Um, and having that right midfielder in this kind of game seemed like it would make more difference than having Jadon Sancho. Yeah. On the other hand, having a, a more balanced uh, front line and better options off the bench also would have helped helped a lot. Yeah, it would. We, we need a midfielder who can 
do Matic's role in terms of protecting the defence, but also has the passing ability of, or at least very close to that of Paul Pogba. Yeah. It's very hard to come by. You know, we basically what I'm saying is we need Fernandinho of seven or eight years ago. Yeah, exactly. Um, Because he's done that role for City so well for about a decade now. And I think that's what we kind of hoped that Fred would be and obviously hasn't kind of panned out. And, you know, I know there'll be people listening to this and thinking we're being too harsh on Solskjaer and that it's not his fault the squad isn't good enough. And that is all true. But I think it's also fair to say that he he hasn't dealt with situations particularly well. And I, I mean, I was so angry about the way that we tried to see out the game once it was yeah, over. Agreed. I was yeah. apocalyptically angry <laughs> just because it was, it was so obvious what was coming. Again, yeah. you know, you imagine being on that team and seeing Eric Bailly, I think it was about the 77th, 78th minute, coming on for Mason Greenwood. Yeah, yeah. What message does that send to you as a team? Yeah. Even if Solskjaer is on the sideline telling you, come on guys, keep pushing up high, like keep the ball, let's still, let's go for this second goal. What does the message of Bailly coming on tell you? It tells you that, okay, for the next 12, 15 minutes, including stoppage time, this is all hands yeah. on deck. You know, we're trying to hang yeah. on and save this game. And all right, I know that Brighton might not be world beaters, but against any Premier League team, if you give them 15 minutes of pretty much constant wave yeah. after wave after wave of attack, they're going to, at the very least, create one very good chance and probably score. And against Brighton, it was three that I can remember very clearly amazing chances in that period. He had Solly March at the back post, had a volley that he hit over the bar. There was one that came into, I think it might have been Trossard um, in the box. He sort of toe-poked straight at De Gea, who made a decent save. And then a few minutes later, there was obviously Solly March's goal. And it's exactly, it's a carbon copy of what happened against Southampton as well Last at the end of last season. Yeah. We were winning 2-1. We sat back for the last 15 minutes and eventually Southampton scored. The only way that that is ever a sustainable tactic is if you are so good defensively that you can <laughs> yeah. actually be confident that you'll keep them out. Yeah, and, and, and there are very few teams in history that have been good enough to do that. Yeah, and United have have, have not shown that at any point over the last few years. And this has been a, no. I think this has been a, this was a problem under Mourinho and one of the great frustrations under Van Gaal as well is that we, look, we, we were lucky to be 2-1 up and having been lucky to be 2-1 up, we should have then pressed on with that advantage. After we scored our, our second goal, I think it yeah. was the 52nd minute, it's another 40 minutes in which to extend that lead or see the game out. And and we didn't do that. And it, it was, that's that's why when, and we said this at the start, that's why when Solly March scores his equaliser, it, it wasn't a sense of anger. It wasn't a sense of, um, of I mean, it was frustration, but it was mainly despondency and, and there was just that inevitability about it. And I said, I've, again, I was watching with a lot of um, non-United fans and I said when Bayi came on, the equaliser is going to come. And, and 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 at 94 minutes, I thought oh, we might have got away with one here. As it turns out, we hadn't. And then we, we ended up did getting away with it. But it, it is inevitable and it's... You, Solskjaer can can talk about playing the United way and, and the DNA, but that's that's not it. And and it's basically a mythical concept anyway. I, I generally think there isn't a United way. But no. if he's going to advertise himself as as this kind of attacking manager with excitement, that's not it. And United's attack is good enough to be scoring three goals against Brighton uh, without the assistance of a hundredth minute penalty. It is good enough to outdo Brighton yeah. and to win that game in normal time and to have it wrapped up. 
by the end of the game. And look, the players are clearly tired. That the preseason's been been poor, but this is the attack that was together last season. Um, and and much of this team has been playing for the last few years as well. So those those are reasonably yeah. excuses, but it shouldn't have affected um the tactics going in towards the end of the game. And and like Van der Beek coming on in the I think eighty eighth minute, maybe probably the fittest player in the team, the only one who's had a preseason. It, it yeah. It, it's it's yeah. those kind of kind of baffling decisions, and uh, there, and there's two more points I want to make about this because I was having discussion with people on Twitter about it after the game. And one that I think we we sometimes get so wrapped up in this concept of us playing counter attacking football because it's what supposedly was defined the Ferguson era, even though I don't agree that it did in not in the majority of games anyway. Yeah, and it's also you know what we thrived on last season and when Solskjaer first arrived. The problem when you do that especially in a situation like the Brighton game yeah. where they're chasing the game, is that the kind of counterattacks that we we go on are so high risk. And that's not a problem of United, just counterattacks in general are very high risk because you have to deal with a ball getting cleared sort of aimlessly and then hope that it falls to someone. And that first pass is inch perfect to get you through sort of that ring fence that Brighton would put around the edge of the box. It's so high risk that the chances of it coming off are very, very slim. You know, there was probably at least five or six times when we yeah. cleared the ball onto someone at the edge of the box and we tried to spring a counter-attack and we just couldn't because they're inevitably, by their very nature, they are very difficult to pull off. And what that means is when that's your only outlet is an immediate counter-attack, most of the time you're going to clear the ball and then immediately be back under pressure. And it happened about five or six times during that last 10 minutes. But second is that, you know, I think the classic... Yeah sort of reasoning that people give as to why this maybe wasn't Solskjaer's fault was, you know, ultimately the goal comes from a mistake by Bruno Fernandes. And I and I completely understand that. Ultimately, Solskjaer isn't on the pitch. He can't control the player's every movement. And ultimately, it was a, a mistake from a player that caused the goal. But I think that kind of misses the point of what coaching yeah. is. Coaching isn't about sort of micromanaging your players every single movement. It's about trying to put your players in a position where they won't, where there's a least possibility of them making a mistake. And by forcing us to defend for 15 minutes straight at the end of the game, Solskjaer put every one of our players in a position where not only is it much more likely they're going to make a mistake, but they're also, those mistakes are probably going to be punished with a goal because we're making them on our own, on the edge of our own box and not on the edge of Brighton's box. I think that's the point. That's what needs to change in the coaching is that put us in a better position, see out the game positively with, you know, possession football, keep the ball, control the game, keep it away from Brighton. That's how a top team sees out the game. Not like this. Yeah. And in in the same way, the team's not being put out, certainly at the end of the game, in a position where the attacking players are being given the opportunities to do what they do best and and to create goals and and that's the same idea yeah. where it's like we're deliberately limiting ourselves we should uh, wrap up talk on the brighton game uh, i mean i mean we have got away with one and it it was drama of the highest order and i i woke up on saturday morning with a a, a horrible hangover and had it until the 98th minute and then Bruno Fernandes sticks his penalty in and and I was instantly cured um so I've 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 got Bruno and and the referee to thank for that but it it, it was yeah it, it I mean it was a great feeling winning that game uh on the other hand it came as a result of all sorts of 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 problems including with VR and balls poor united performances whatever yeah. um and I know this is a united podcast but I have to say I th- I really think Brighton are going places yeah yeah Brighton were impressive as were Crystal Palace against us as well and because there's not so much to do these days and because all the Premier League games are on TV it's yeah. a, it's a chance to I have watched every single Premier League game of the season basically so far and Palace are, are very good to watch Brighton are very good to watch and, and both look um, good and they could be the two kind of 
creeping up at the bottom of that top eight um, or or even top seven this season. Um, they they look like the best two candidates. Yeah, I think so. I mean that that Brighton midfield especially is so good. Yeah, yeah. Um, Alzate, Trossard, Alzate Milano, was, was very good Bissouma against us. In there, very very good midfield. Yeah, and, and Palace as well. Abereze is is settling in quickly, but when he properly gets going yeah. with Zaha, it'll be brilliant to watch. Um, right, let's go to youth loan and women's roundup, uh, and then we'll preview the games against Brighton and Tottenham. Manchester United's under 23s were beaten five three by. Liverpool on Friday evening. It was a defeat um, and a, a big learning curve for the team. United's goals came from Anthony Alanga, Hannibal Medjbury and Charlie McCann. Uh, it, it was a loss, but when you look at the players who were unavailable for the game, you realise how young the United team was. It's 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 a pretty incredibly young United team. Laird, Mengi, Taylor, Devine, Puigmao, Galbraith, Traore, Garner, Hagarth, Levitt, Melo, Helm and Shortire all unavailable. That's kind of almost the whole of the normal under-23s team. And so the only player starting over the age of 18 in that team was Deshaun Bernard. Six under 18s players played, including two 16 year olds. Um, so a 5 3 loss, but nothing to be concerned about. And and that young United team will get a huge amount of experience this season. The under 18s team itself beat Burnley 5 1. Uh, two goals from Amari Forsen, one from new Spanish signing Alvaro Fernandez, and one from summer signing Joe Hugo. And another first for French striker Noam Emran directly from a free kick. The under 16s and under 15s also had big wins. And in loan news, James Garner's had a great start to his loan spell at Watford. He's been getting all of the praise after making his debut as their number 16. We'll try to speak to someone soon, uh, a Watford fan. Once he's had a few more games, we can talk about how he's doing. We'll do the same with the rest of our loanees. Elsewhere, Mate Kovar, the goalkeeper, he helped Swindon Town to a 4-2 win against Burton. Dylan Levitt started for Charlton against Lincoln City. Aliou Traore wasn't involved as Khan in League 2 lost again. And Tahith Chong came off the bench for Werder Bremen as they beat Schalke 3-1. No action again for United's women's team. Um, they're back again next weekend, uh, October the 4th, I think their next game is. Right, Jack. Tottenham at the weekend uh, that's probably the bigger game to preview but Brighton again in the Carabao Cup they will be very keen to seek uh, revenge and make amends for the the game we've just been talking about when they definitely deserve to win I'm sure United will be making some changes um, but again it, if, I think I said this last week it, it's a it's a difficult one to kind of predict because we really don't know who United are going to play who Brighton are going to play no one was expecting us to, to come up against the Luton team who made nine changes for example and we actually didn't, haven't spoken about that game um, but it was nice to get some goals even if it, it wasn't the easiest game but what are you expecting from, from another game against Brighton? I mean it could be completely different depending on the, the teams that we put out I would expect there to be a lot of changes from both I mean it's probably going to be quite strange for um, for a lot of the players just you know the same game after what two or three days out it, on, it honestly wouldn't surprise me if actually having almost a completely new team for United might yeah. may actually help in some ways sometimes we end up playing better because we seem to rely a little bit less yeah. on the individuals up front and actually play a little bit more cohesively going forward that wasn't really the case against Luton um, apart from little spells I thought we started really well against Luton and Lingard in particular was very very impressive for the first sort of 10-15 minutes and then took our foot off the gas so if we can sort of keep that up and sustain that then who knows maybe we'll end up actually playing better against Brian with our sort of second <laughs> string team but yeah I mean, it's very hard to predict because it's all—it's all really down to what sort of lineups we put out. If one team goes very strong and one team goes weak, then you know it, it could be a very different game. Yeah, um, I think the Spurs game is is more worth previewing, um, and there. Their fixtures before this, uh, they've just drawn to Newcastle 1-1. I actually thought they played really well against Newcastle um, and were they were very yeah. unfortunate to draw that game. 
but Hyunmin Son's out for a few weeks. He'll be out for the United game. Harry Kane appeared to be sent off, but it wasn't him. It was Tottenham's goalkeeping coach, so he will be available. But um, Tottenham play just played on Sunday against Newcastle. They then play Tuesday in the League Cup against Chelsea, then Thursday in the Europa League against Maccabi Haifa, then Sunday against United. Um, it's a it's a ridiculous schedule. Four games in eight days for Tottenham, a team who have had injury problems. Um, so that there's that to consider. And uh, they will be missing Son. I don't think Gareth Bale will be ready yet, although it would be quite exciting if he was. And, I mean, United should be winning against a team playing this many games and a team that we should be better than at home. But it will it will have to be our best game of the season so far. Yeah, completely ridiculous schedule for, for Spurs and especially with Son getting injured as well. It, it's hard to, to know exactly where they stand just because... I watched their first couple of games and to be honest, I thought they were pretty dreadful. Um, but then, like you said, against Newcastle today, they were much, much better and looked like a, a proper good side and deserved a lot more than a one-all draw out of it. Son being out is a huge plus because he is exactly the kind of player that you do not want to even imagine him facing yeah. Maguire and Lindelof. You know, Bergwijn called, has caused us enough issues when we played Spurs at the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium back in, when was it, June? And Son is sort of a, an even faster, more refined, better version of Bergwijn. So that is a big plus for us. It, it's a game that you would, I guess, expect us to win, but not necessarily expect us to win sort of every time. Who knows what sort of tactics Mourinho is going to come up with. We've had some some good games against Tottenham actually recently. But yeah, I mean, you would expect us to win. I think we are a better side than Spurs. Our first eleven is is definitely stronger than theirs. And as as much as Solskjaer has taken a lot of, I think, justified criticism, I don't think Mourinho is exactly, <laughs> you know, in the prime of his coaching career, as we all know yeah. <laughs> far too well from a couple of years ago. So who knows? It's, I think I would go for a United win purely because we seem to play better against uh, bigger teams. But you could also see, I think, Mourinho sitting back and sort of forcing us to play against the deep block and trying to hit us on the counter-attack with the likes of Lucas and Bergwijn and Kane. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, it's still a threatening front line from them. If they do sit back, then it it, it feels like... The, I mean, we said this about Brighton, but it feels like the game that van der Beek should be starting. If, if Tottenham are going to sit back, then you want yeah. van der Beek kind of moving around the edge of the box and in the box and... and bringing Martial into the game a bit more very quiet against Brighton um, and against Crystal yeah, Palace exactly. as well. When, and as much as we sort of know, I think know that Pogba is in our first 11, he clearly isn't fit at the yeah. moment and not playing particularly well. He shouldn't be starting these games. He, I mean, he only had coronavirus, what was it, three, four weeks ago? Yeah. And now he's being asked to play in a Premier League game I just think Van der Beek has to start yeah um, I, I mean it's an interesting because does does Van der Beek replace Pogba um, he's I think he was used in a in a deep role when he played against uh, Villa in that that friendly but then it was interesting when he came on against Palace that Van der Beek was pushed forward and Fernandez was the one that dropped yeah, yeah. well I think yeah Fernandez kind of dropped to play alongside Matic which I didn't expect it's a possibility the problem with Bruno is he, he gives away the ball a lot because of the, the style in which he plays. So if you're going to play him deeper, you have to be ready for that. And because of Matic being good, but not having that much pace, if Bruno gives away the ball, Matic isn't the best person to recover. Neither is Maguire. Perhaps Eric Bailly would start and, and help out with that a bit. Yeah, it is an interesting one. But you, yeah, I think Bruno Deep offers quite a lot and kind of links the, the game a bit more. Um, we'll wrap things up there. We could do a quick score prediction. I'll go 2-1 United against Tottenham and a defeat to Brighton in midweek. I'll go a win on penalties against Brighton 
midweek. I'll go with the win against Spurs oh, as well. I forgot, I forgot it could be penalties. <laughs> I think it just the, the script is nice. written for that, very, you know. Very confident. Surprisingly confident. Yeah, this, I think this is the first the first time I'm predicting United yeah. to win all season. I don't know. Maybe I predicted a win against Palace, actually. I don't know. But um, I'm not particularly confident with either of those, to be honest. But yeah, I'll go with the 2-1 win against Spurs. Yeah, I mean, it's nice to leave people with a, some kind of optimism as we... Uh, reach the end of the show. Thank you very much for listening as always to the Manchester United Weekly Podcast. Thank you for all your support. Thank you to our patrons. Um, I gave them a shout out at the start of the show. There's one more I need to give a shout out to which I'll do next week in our next episode. If you want to be one of the names being shouted out at the start of the podcast then go to our Twitter at UTD Weekly Pod P-O-D at the end there and you can find out information on how to become a patron. Basically you pay a small amount of money and in return you get extra podcasts each month. You get extra content from uh, Jack and I and at the end of every show you get an exclusive Q&A so these episodes will be more like 45 minutes an hour rather than half an hour or 40 minutes um, and you get to ask those questions so if you're interested go to Twitter at UTDpod P-O-D at the end there and you can find out more information um, but for more from us throughout the week uh, as United play Brighton on Wednesday and then Tottenham on Sunday you can find Jack on Twitter at at UTD Tate's T-A-I-T and you can find me on Twitter at Harry Robinson 64 and remember the podcast itself at UTD Weekly Pod that's P-O-D thanks for listening have a great week enjoy uh, some more behind closed doors football uh, see how see how good it can get and see if United can build a, a slightly undeserved winning run goodbye Network. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.